0: Pella Windows and Doors of Wisconsin has six lines to fit your style and financing to fit any budget. Through November 30th, choose 12 months no payments and no interest, plus 20% off installation. Set your free consultation now at PellaWI.com.
1: Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. The AccuNet Mortgage Talk and Text Line is open now. Give Jeff a call at 855 616 1620.
2: And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. So glad to have you with us. Let me call uh, your attention to my Twitter account. It's at Wagner 620 I have a link to a, a story of uh, Bruce Murphy has been a longtime journalist in the Milwaukee area, and he is the guy who who actually first broke the news of the Milwaukee County pension scandal two decades ago. And I understand that as we get farther and farther away from that time, more and more people forget about it. But essentially what what happened is the then-county executive and members of the county board of supervisors made changes to the county pension plan that they claimed was going to be revenue neutral. And what it effectively did is took a certain number of county employees and, and made them rich beyond the dreams of, of avarice. And, and once the word got out about it, well, a number of the county supervisors said that they were deceived. They didn't understand what was going on. It led to a series of recalls. It also led to the then county executive in Milwaukee County, Tom Amit, um, resigning rather than have to face the, the, the recall. Well, um, that pension scandal, has really been following Milwaukee County for the last couple decades. And if you want to trace back the awful financial condition the county is in a a lot of it comes back to the pension scandal there's there's other factors as well but it all starts with that pension scandal and bruce murphy who's now the editor of urban milwaukee which is one of the it's a website that actually does i think a very very good job of covering city issues it's it's got a perspective and but that that's okay Um, in any event he's kind of reviewing and looking back at the, the pension scandal 20 years later. And he's got a series of pieces coming out. The first one is out today. Um, and it talks about how that the county's pension plans and the costs are still rising. I have a link to it. So again, if you follow me on Twitter, it's at Jeff Wagner 620. It's very apparent that two day, two decades later, the Milwaukee County pension scandal continues to haunt taxpayers and county government. And if you want to have sort of a little primer on that and a refresher course, and understand what a real disaster this was and what happens when elected officials, either through misfeasance or malfeasance, end up doing things and how it really can affect a community for decades. It's a, it's a good piece, and it's the first in the series, and I've got a link to it. Um, it's on their website, Urban Milwaukee, but you can link to it off of my Twitter account, at Wagner 620 Okay, let us get started. The Whenever you talk about COVID issues, there there is no room for nuance. This is something that I've learned over the last year and a half. If you say, hey, I believe in vaccinations, but I don't think the government should mandate it, you immediately become a COVID denier who is responsible for the deaths of hundreds of thousands of Americans. How dare you suggest that we shouldn't wear masks for the rest of our lives? And how how dare you suggest that we shouldn't lock down people? On, on, On the other hand, if you say, hey, I believe in vaccinations, but I don't think there should be mandates. Then you also hear from the other side of people saying, oh, don't you understand? The government has no business telling us I don't want to put this stuff in my body. And and so you hear from both sides of this. And I understand that people are, are really, really dug in. I think, on the other hand, the real world approach needs to be a lot more nuanced. By that, I mean, I think you can appreciate that covid poses a threat and that you know reasonable steps like people getting vaccinated is something that should be encouraged but at the same time not hit the panic button the hair on fire oh my gosh the world is ending sort of thing because again for the vast majority of people that that's that's not what happens get yourself vaccinated and the the odds are unless you've got some underlying health issue odds are that you're not going to be one of the breakthrough cases and if you are it's not in all likelihood, going to be a serious thing. Now, again, if you're 90 years old and you've got all sorts of underlying health conditions and you get one of those breakthrough cases, it can be bad consequences. But you can at the same time, you can also get hit by a bus if you're crossing Wisconsin Avenue. I don't think you're a covid denier if you sort of point out that you have to always do sort of a cost benefit analysis, which brings us to something that Joe Biden is planning to roll out tomorrow, we don't know the exact form of it, but here is what he is saying. Apparently, the Biden administration is preparing to issue stricter testing requirements on travel. Okay, so so follow this. The U.S. is going to, assuming he carries out this plan tomorrow, the U.S., and I'm looking at the Washington Post now, the U.S. is going to require... Anyone entering the country, citizen, non-citizen, to be tested one day before you get on your flight. Right? doesn't matter if you're vaccinated. Well, to to fly internationally, you, you have to be vaccinated. So even if you're fully vaccinated, you will have to be tested one day before boarding your flight regardless of vaccination status, regardless of the country of departure. So you're going to have to have a negative test one day before you get on the plane. All right. Then apparently what is happening is administration officials are considering that once you fly into the United States, now you've already been tested, you're vaccinated, you've been tested one day before you get on the flight. You get on the flight, you come back to the United States. They are also considering a requirement that all travelers then get retested within three to five days after arrival. So you're vaccinated, you've been tested before you get on the plane, you fly, you land in the United States, then you would have to get retested three to five days after you arrive. In addition, this is what the Washington Post says. Officials are also debating a proposal that would require all travelers, including U.S. citizens, to self-quarantine for seven days, even if the test results are negative. So you have to be vaccinated to travel. Let's say you're coming back from the United Kingdom. You have to have been vaccinated to have traveled there in the first place. Before you can get on the plane flying back to Chicago, you have to... 24 hours beforehand, you have to have a negative COVID test. You get to Chicago. You then have three to five days to have another COVID test once you're back in the United States. But in addition, you would be required to self-quarantine for seven days, regardless of the results of, of the tests. Travelers, this is again the Washington Post, who flout the requirement may be subject to fines and penalties. The first time such penalties would be linked to testing and quarantine measures for travelers to the United States. Okay, let's open up the phone lines. 855-616-1620. That is the acunate mortgage talk and text line at the risk of being labeled a covid denier who doesn't care about covid deaths. This this is crazy. At some point, and it's number one, it's crazy. Number two, it is absolutely and totally unenforceable. I, I mean, seriously. Okay, I understand. You can require somebody to have to have proof of that negative COVID test before they get on on the plane. When I was in France a couple months ago, that that's what happened. You had to, you know, you, you had to have a, a negative COVID test before you could get on the plane to come back to the United States. Fine, we we did that. You had to show that, you know, once you got into customs. Okay, that's cool. But then once you get into the United States, as a practical matter. This idea that every foreign traveler, U.S. citizen or otherwise, who has tested negative, who is vaccinated, you're going to have to put yourself in quarantine for seven days. And in that seven-day period, you're going to have to have another test for three to five days. How in the world are you going to enforce that? I mean, are we now going to have the federal police or the local police that are going to go door to door and say, Mr. Wagner, we found out that you got back on January 3rd from Europe. Um, we know you've had the negative test. We know you've been vaccinated, but um, we, we want to see proof that you've gotten another COVID test. And we want to know where you have been over the course of the last week. You haven't been able to go back to work, you know, we you are expected to self-quarantine 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I'm sorry. I think this is, again, in trying to balance the need to keep people safe. I, I get it versus the need to recognize that we have lives that we have to continue to live. I think this is way over on the extreme, and candidly, I don't think anybody's going to pay attention to it. Explain to me how you are going to enforce this if your daughter's coming in for the holidays – gets in from the united kingdom all right had the negative results has been vaccinated i mean who's going to check on whether or not you know your daughter goes out to a restaurant or goes out to a bar i mean are we going to have the the federal police that are now going to be following everybody that comes in from international travel 855-616-1620 we discuss back to take your calls here's wtmj's jeff wagner 855-616-1620, 855-616-1620, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Look, I I, I understand, and like I said, when I was in France uh, a couple months ago, that was the requirement to get back into this country. Even though you're fully vaccinated, you have to have a, a COVID test. I think it was 72 hours before you, you got on the plane coming back. Now, of course, the problem is if this rule really is one day, I, I'm not sure how you do that as a practical matter. I mean, it's, that's asking a lot to, if you're flying back on a Saturday, okay, so that means if you're flying back at 10 in the morning Saturday, you have starting at 10 a.m. Friday to go find a pharmacy, get the test done, get the results back and process it. That that That's a lot going on. But okay, that's, that's the rule. Got to have the test to come back in. I understand that. But then once you get back in the country, the Biden administration says, we want you, or at least is considering making a rule that says you have to self-quarantine for a week and then you have to have another follow-up test three to five days after that? Who Who is going to enforce this? I mean, as, as a practical matter, who is, is going to do this? And at some point in time, do we say, all right, these restrictions, that the, the cost of doing it and the likelihood that we're going to be able to enforce it, are you really going to find people? Are you going to put people in jail? And by the way, as a number of you pointing out on the text line, you know, we we allow people to come into this country illegally and then just kind of disappear into the night without being checked for COVID. But yet, a U.S. citizen who's vaccinated, who's had that test, we're going to say that you have to quarantine yourself for a week, 855-616-1620. Let's start with Jim in Algoma. Hi, Jim, you're on WTMJ.
3: Yes. Uh, My experience with uh, people who say that they normally say do not panic they are the ones that panic and that's appearing
2: appears to be what president biden is doing this this does People have kind panic. of a hair on fire sort of panic sort of thing yes i agree with you yep no thanks thanks for no, i mean i, I think there look and, and i i understand you know, the, the idea of, of reasonable restrictions, and I understand that we, we, we don't know about the, this Omicron variant. That, that's one of the things that's been so amazing to me since this story broke on Thursday is all the gyrations in the stock market and the freaking out. And, and, and we don't know. It could be more transmissible than other variants or not. It could be something that the boosters take care of or that they don't take care of. It could be less significant as far as as results. and stuff. We just don't know any of these things, but yet we're talking about saying, hey, if you come back into this country and you're fully vaccinated and you've tested negative, you still have to lock yourself up for a week. And I w- I'm waiting for the reporter to say, Mr. Biden or the CDC that's trying to come out with this thing, explain to me how exactly we are going to enforce this. Are we going to Follow everybody that's come into this country and see. Hey, you went out to the grocery store. You weren't self quarantined. Now we're going to fine you a thousand dollars or five thousand dollars or or whatever. Let's talk to Dale in Madison. Dale, you're on WTMJ. Hey,
4: Jeff, how you doing?
2: Good. What do you think?
4: Well, I I think it is uh, probably unenforceable. I mean, we we certainly don't do a very good job of keeping track of people who overstay their visas. Yep. Uh, so this is just you know, another situation where um, you, you know, it's gonna be, there's not going to be enough people uh, or time to be chasing folks down uh, if they were to implement this. But uh, the reason I called is uh, from a personal perspective, my wife and I have a uh, vacation scheduled. It's only five days to Turks and Caicos. And we we have to show a negative COVID test to go there, but now if I've got to while I'm on vacation find some place to get a negative COVID test to come back yep. for five days, you know uh, I might as well just cancel this vacation until this blows over because you know it's not an inexpensive vacation. And uh, now with all that's going on, you know, so this sh- certainly could have a negative, very negative impact on, on the vacation well,
2: well, Dale, and, and, and let, let's also talk about business travel. Okay, let's say you are, you're a representative from a U.S.-based company and you, you, you I don't know, you, you sell mechanical stuff. And so you, you've traveled to Germany to meet with clients and things like that. You're fully vaccinated. You've had the test before you come back, you get in back into this country, but you're not going to be allowed to go to work for a week you know despite the fact that there's no evidence that you might be a carrier of this regardless of what country you've come from there might be no evidence of omicron in that particular country you're going to have to stay home from work for seven days i mean who think of what the cost of business is going to be if we really seriously do that
4: Yes, yeah, certainly. Uh, I totally
2: agree with you. Yeah, no, thanks for calling. And, and you're you're right from a vacation travel perspective as well. Now, look, we I mean, here here's the reality. If you are traveling overseas in the world of COVID, you've got to be prepared for some inconveniences. And, and I'll I'll use that word. And like I say when we were when when we were on our, our river cruise in France to get into all the places in France, you had to have that proof of vaccination. They they checked They checked that, and okay, so that's fine. It was a little bit of a pain, but you're vaccinated, you've got, you show the proof of that. You had to have the negative COVID test 72 hours, and, and what we did, now I was part of a group on a river cruise, and the cruise line brought somebody from a a pharmacy in, actually onto the ship, and they did, they scheduled these appointments, and they did all the testing, and you were able to get your results back in four or five hours, so you, you know, you, you had it. But if you're not part of a situation like that, and you're an independent traveler, and you're on your own trying to you're in a country where you don't speak the language and you're trying to figure out, okay, I've got to find a, a place that does these testing and I've got to work it out on my email so I get this and I have the proof. Okay, it, it, it's a pain, but you you can end up, I guess it's something that you can possibly navigate. But then once you get back into this country, the idea that the government is telling you, all right, without any evidence that you are sick, you're going to have to go and have another test. Well, who's going to check on the results of that test? I mean, seriously. But you're also going to have to lock yourself up for seven days so, you can't go into work. You, um, you know, can't see your, your family. I mean, at some point in time, you have to say, look, we, enough is enough. And I agree with our first caller. You know, Joe Biden, one of the first things he said was, we're not going to panic about this. Well, it sounds like this is absolute and total panic. And I wonder if it's driven as much by the science as the fact that Joe Biden's poll numbers are plummeting and this latest explosion of the newest COVID variant are, are, are going. To wait till you see the popularity numbers and the approval numbers when the latest sets of polls come out, because if you thought they were low before, my prediction is they're going to be hitting all-time lows for the Biden administration. I'm not saying that you shouldn't take stuff seriously, but at the same time, don't you have to have some balancing test to try to figure out where this is absolutely going to be. Now, hopefully they will recognize how insane this is and pull it back a little bit. The CDC is pushing for it, but maybe some practical concerns will have, will take place. At the very least, though, even if they don't go with the self quarantine, there's no question in my mind, they are going to require people who've come into this country despite being vaccinated, despite Again, having the negative COVID test to go have another negative COVID test, another COVID test three to five days after they get back into the country. How you enforce it, I I do not know what that says about the purpose of being vaccinated. If now we we say, okay, if you're vaccinated, you're you're set. But oh, by the way, when you get back into this country, even if you've been vaccinated, we want you to have more tests. What that sends, what message that sends to the people who are reluctant to get vaccinated, I, I don't know. But it certainly does seem like panic flop sweat from the administration and from the cdc with regard to this latest variant that we really still don't know anything about
1: you're listening to jeff wagner on wtmj
2: you know there's catchy slogans and, and you hear that and you go oh i i love this phrase there, there must be something wrong here but sometimes those slogans are really like a smoke screen for for nothing to see here Over the last few weeks, there has been a a series of public events that has been led by predominantly Uh, ministers from predominantly black churches around the city of Milwaukee. Uh, Jesse Jackson parachuted into town yesterday and he he and a number of ministers stormed City Hall and they were demanding answers from you know Tom Barrett who's I think probably trying to figure out how much stuff he's gonna move to Luxembourg when he ends up going. But the phrase that they're using is, is taxing and taking. No, No more taxing and taking and it sounds really really good Until you you think about what's really going on here. Now, the claim is that the city of Milwaukee is foreclosing on churches for failure to pay property taxes or money that's owed on property taxes. And the idea is, well, well, churches are tax exempt. How dare the city do this? Well, when you start to break this down, though, it becomes a little bit more complicated. Let me explain that. I want to discuss this with you. All right. Like Jesse Jackson, for example, he's saying a church should not be taxed. We're going to file lawsuits. We're going to demand our money back. We're going to lead demonstrations across the country. And you you might say, well, I didn't think we taxed churches in the state of Wisconsin. And if you thought that, you would be correct because churches are tax exempt. Religious properties are tax-exempt. So you might say to me, well, Jeff, where does this issue come in? Okay, well, well, here's the deal, and and follow me with uh, this. Every two years, the city of Milwaukee sends out notices to all the, in this case, it would be churches. You know, any property owner who is exempt from taxes gets a notice every two years and they have to fill this out and they have to send it back in. So if, if you, if Jeff Wagner runs the church of what's happening now, and I've got a legitimate tax exemption, every two years I get this notice from the city. And I, I have to fill out the form, and I have to to send it back in. Now that's not unlike lots of other stuff that you get notices from your insurance company, notices from the government, whatever that you have to you know keep updating people on your status. Why would the city do this? Well, it's because it's possible between, for example, two thousand nineteen and two thousand twenty one that. Uh, Maybe a church closed, for example, and they sold the building to someone else and it's no longer tax exempt. So the the requirement is you get the tax exemption, but you've got to, all you have to do is is every two years, you have to fill out this form and notify the city of Milwaukee, in this case, that you're still tax exempt. You got to send in the form, right? If you don't send in the form, well, then the city assumes that you are not tax-exempt. That that's it. But that's why the burden is on you to do it. Okay, there's a couple other ways that churches can end up being taxed, you know, I guess, quote-unquote, taxed. Churches are not exempt from having to pay, like, sewage and water bills. So, you know, every every quarter, you probably get a bill from your local utility company saying, hey, you owe X amount of dollars for the sewer service, X, X amount of dollars for water services. If you do not pay in the city of Milwaukee, what they do is they then add that. They put it on on a tax bill. So, yes, you might be a tax-exempt property. But if you are delinquent in paying your water bills or your sewer bills, sewage bills, yeah, you're, you're going to have a charge on your tax bill. It's not a tax, but it's a charge for the utilities. And at some point in time, if that gets big enough, you could be subject to foreclosure. There's other examples as well. Let's say you own you, you have a church and the church leases out the, 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 the basement for like a, a daycare center. It's not run by the church, it's a for-profit daycare center. Well, if you lease, if you're a church, and you lease some of your space out to someone else, well then, you know, you 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 have to pay taxes on it, because you're not using it for religious purposes. And if you think about it, that makes sense, because if I'm running a, a daycare center, and I, I own a building, and I'm running a daycare center, And I have to pay taxes on the property taxes on the building I own where the daycare center is. Well, if you've got if I've got a competitor who is, I don't know, operating out of a church and it's a for profit type of thing. Well, of course, they should have to pay taxes on on their that not the whole church, but at least a a portion of the building, because otherwise they have an unfair advantage because they're leasing from a church. So those are some of the ways. The churches can, in fact, be, be taxed. But But the biggest thing is, every two years, you have to fill out a form and send it in saying that you are tax-exempt. And apparently, there are some churches around the area who don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> who just ignore it or don't know that they have to do it or ignore the notices or whatever. And as a result, they end up on the tax rolls. So that's what this this big tax and take thing is. We need to stop this. We need to halt it. Our number is 855-616-1620. That is the acunate mortgage talk and text line. I, I'm, I'm sorry, but it's tough for me to be too sympathetic to these situations. If you are going to run a tax exempt entity, whether it's a church or a charity or a soup kitchen or whatever, you know, there are, there's paperwork. There's forms that you have to do to continue to keep your, your status updated. And if you choose not to do it for whatever reasons, well, there, there's consequences for that. And if you want to avoid getting I don't know. Potentially having your place, you know, foreclosed on. Well, what, what you need to do is make sure that you're. Your, your status as a tax exempt organization is kept up to date and that if you've got to pay your utility bills, you've paid the utility bills, and if you rent out your basement to a daycare center or whatever, and you have to pay some property taxes on that, you pay the property taxes on that. Eight five five six one six one six twenty. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I just I, I just don't see this as rocket science. I don't see it as something that we need massive changes in state legislation for. I don't see this as a situation where the city of Milwaukee is the bad guy you know if you're going to run a tax exempt organization church or otherwise there are there are things that you need to do to be in compliance and to get the tax exempt break and one of them is filling out a form eight five five six one six one six twenty we discuss
1: welcome back to jeff wagner on wtmj
2: eight five five six one six one six twenty dennis in milwaukee dennis good afternoon
5: Good afternoon, Jeff. Uh, Thanks for taking my call. You referenced uh, this form that has to be filled out every two years. Uh, Before retiring, I spent the last 17 years of my working career working for a nonprofit. And for those who think this form is complicated, difficult to complete, it takes about 10 minutes to complete the form and that time includes the time required to make a xerox copy for your records right. so it's it's a very simple form to fill out
2: right and it's not it's not like it's asking you to uh, assemble all your your financial records over the last two years and stuff it's just the way i understand it it just essentially requires you to certify that you know you're you're still operating as whatever the business was that generated the tax-exempt status in the first place
5: that's exactly correct and if if you're renting to a for-profit enterprise you've got to indicate their square footage in relation to the total but uh much of the information can be repeated on the form every 2 years.
2: Yeah. So there's really in your opinion there there's really no excuse for for not doing this cuz my my guess is Dennis that for for nonprofits th- this is this is one of the priority sort of things that you want to make sure you you don't lose your tax exempt status over.
5: That's exactly correct. And I I think maybe in many of the cases it it's not a uh a desire not to complete the form I, I think when the envelope comes in from the city, it's probably treated like junk meal.
2: Yeah, and thrown away. Yeah, no. Th- thanks for calling. I, I got. It. And of course, for some people are saying, well, you know, why? Why do you need to do it every two years? Why, why would you have to do it? It's because circumstances change. I mean, may- maybe maybe you are. I don't know, you're, you're operating a, a church out of a building on, you know, one, on a particular street. Well, sometime over that two-year period from when you first certified, maybe you've moved it, maybe the church is closed down. Or, or maybe you, you've moved to a different location. So you've sold the, the building that you were operating out of to, to someone else. Well, I mean, those records have to be updated because if you sold it, for example, to a daycare center or to a bar or whatever, people who are going to use it as a bed and breakfast, do whatever they were going to do, Well, then then it goes back on the tax rolls. It's just it's a bookkeeping thing that needs to be addressed. And of course, there there are taxes that Dennis was alluding to that, that could come true, because if you if you do lease out part of your building for you know tax for to a non tax exempt entity, the daycare, you, you do have to pay some property taxes for that because you're not using it as exclusively as a religious entity. Uh, let's talk to John on the North Side. John, good afternoon. You're on News Radio six twenty W WTMJ. Thanks for taking my call. Can Hi John. you
6: hear me?
2: Yeah I can. What do you think?
6: Okay well I think this I think that if you if you um, risk your church out uh, they shouldn't have to pay tax on it because that money goes to the church, um, to the to the nonprofit organization. It's just like someone uh, donating a, a a bunch of money. So we got to pay taxes on the donated money. What's the difference?
2: Well, okay. So you're saying if I lease space at the church, I'm a, I'm a for profit, or I'm running a daycare center, and I lease space at the church, you don't think the church should have to pay taxes on? On on the the private business that's operating out of the church.
6: Well, no, I mean I mean the business that's their problem. The business is paying taxes on their part of it, but but that money goes into the into the church. So you really would be taxing the church. You know, they they are trying to find a way. You know, I can understand filling out the papers for you know for two years. I can understand that because we've been doing it at our church. But I I don't understand if you lease that church out for anything. That's uh, the church's business. That ain't got nothing to do with taxes. Well, it, I mean, um, I mean,
2: we're exempt. Well, no, th- well, thank you. well, you, you the church. Well, John, the, the the church property is exempt to the extent that you use it for religious purposes. If you take a portion of the property. And you, you no longer use it for religious purposes. We're, we're, we're gonna, my example is a, a private daycare. You're going to use that property for the, the daycare center. Well, that portion of the property that's used for the private purposes, yeah, that, that's, that's subject to, that, that's subject to to taxes, just like, I guess the flip side, I'm not sure it's the perfect analogy off the top of my head, but, you know, if you're claiming a deduction for a home office, you know, and you, you know, you you can, you can write some of your home office that, that that's off. If you, if you weren't allowed to do this, it would give the businesses that operate inside the, the churches a huge advantage because, I mean, for example, they, their rent if I own a private building and I lace it out to a daycare center, um, included in the rent of the daycare center, I'm going to pass on my, part of my tax cost to them. That, that's going to be a cost. If churches could lease out their places without having to worry about taxes, it would give an incredible advantage to the people that lease property from the churches. In, in any event, that, that's that, that, that's kind of the rule, and that's sort of the thinking of it, and, and I don't think that there's going to be a tax change in that. I guess the, the bottom line here is, do I think that they should... The city of Milwaukee is not in an interest in a, in a hurry to try to foreclose on churches but part of the lesson here is that you you've got to there's paperwork that has to be done and city hall is not the bad guy when you you have a minister or a treasurer or somebody who just decides that they're not going to fill out the, the, these forms. And my guess is, by the way, there's also multiple forms that get sent, and there's notice that's given on on this uh, before they automatically foreclose on this. But the bottom line is, this is a priority. Um, with this, and a number of people are texting saying, um, Jeff, you know, we've, we've, we've done this with nonprofits, and somebody just said to me, you know, just so you know, it takes, it takes about 10 minutes to fill out this form, and that includes opening it up, filling it out, putting it back in an envelope, and putting the stamp on the envelope. So when you hear this, like, tax and take thing, if the impression that is given is that there's this war that the city of Milwaukee is conducting on, on churches, it's really, I don't think that that's a fair thing to be made. If you're a legitimate tax-exempt church, you're not going to have to pay taxes on... The portion of your property that is used for the religious purposes. But you do have to fill out the form. And if you don't fill out the form, well, then there might be consequences. Okay. We have been doing this all week. They are back. Cocoa and candy cane cream puffs at the Wisconsin State Fair Park. One weekend only. Drive through pickup is available December 9th through the 12th. So pre order now at statefaircreampuffs.com and save. By the way, did you know that you can freeze your puffs as well? Order extra to enjoy all winter long. Limited edition Cocoa and Candy Cane Cream Puffs at the Wisconsin State Fair. Get more information at statefaircreampuffs.com. And for official contest rules, visit wtmj.com to help you get in the mood. I have... A six-pack of cream puffs to give away. Let's give them to caller number nine. Caller number nine at 855-616-1620. Caller nine, 855-616-1620 wins a six-pack of cream puffs. I think either cocoa or candy cane cream puffs. Um, they're going to be available next weekend, December 9th through the 12th at the Wisconsin State Fair. Live from the
1: Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City. This is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now WTMJ's Jeff Wagner.
2: What do you think about this strategy? I, I was listening to to Mike Spaulding do the news. He's got the latest update on what happened in in Michigan. The, the other day, about the, the shooting. We, we now know the, the, the shooting at Oxford High School in Michigan. There are four students which are dead. There are at least eight others that are injured. Here, here's what we know about what happened. It's a 15-year-old high school sophomore. Um, he used, it now turns out, a handgun that his father had purchased on Black Friday, The weapon was a 9-millimeter Sig Sauer pistol. Uh, The 15-year-old had two 15-round magazines, including one with seven remaining rounds when authorities apprehended him. Um, They say when he took it from him, he had a loaded firearm, he was coming down the hall. They they believe that they confronted him and he surrendered or else there would have been seven more victims. Uh, The sheriff said the suspect fired at least 12 rounds, um, so at least 12 rounds, there's apparently the father at the same time he bought the gun, he purchased a third magazine that, that law enforcement has not found yet, but they think that, you know, as they continue to search at the school, they're going to end up finding it. Okay. So that that's kind of the background on what happened. Here's the interesting part of, of the story that I think is worthy of at least one segment for discussion that Mike had. Okay. So in this case, the suspect surrendered. This was a 15 year old who, once he was confronted by authorities, he surrendered after, you know, shooting up the, the school. He's being held in a juvenile detention facility. His parents have swooped in and the kid has lawyered up. Parents retained an attorney and the kid has declined to speak with, with law enforcement. And presumably that's on the advice of, of counsel, and that's with the blessing of of the parents. He, he's not cooperating with law enforcement. Now, let me be real clear here. You know, in this country, you do not have an obligation to speak to the police. I mean, and and the fact that you choose to remain silent in a court of law, at least, you know, cannot be used against you i find this interesting though and and this is i guess my question to you all right if you had a child who has taken your gun who has gone to school who has killed four of his classmates and injured a whole bunch more you know caused a huge amount of carnage i mean i understand mom and dad going out and getting him a lawyer And and I understand that constitutionally, you are under no obligation to cooperate with the authorities, but if that was your kid, would you be encouraging him to, to lawyer up, not cooperate with the police under these circumstances, or would you be saying, look, that's my kid. I, I love him. I want to get him the best legal advice around. But there's four people that are dead. There's, you know, a number of others who are seriously wounded. My child did something which is unspeakably horrible. And I would not want to encourage him not to talk to the police. 855-616-1620. That's the Accident mortgage talk and text line. Has an absolute right to, to do it. There, there's, there's no question about it. You can't force people to talk. At the same time, I'm thinking, if that was my 15-year-old kid who had done something horrible like this, my first reaction would not necessarily be to say, okay, let's lawyer up and let's see what the state thinks the case is all about. I might be saying, you've done something incredibly horrible. and. You know, there's going to be huge consequences for this, and maybe we start by trying to make this right to the extent we can, and we'll never be able to completely make it right. Maybe we start by cooperating with law enforcement in every single way. 855-616-1620, that's the AccuNet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Would you encourage your kid not to speak to law enforcement, not to cooperate if your child or a close friend or someone like that was accused of committing a horrendous crime like this. 855-616-1620. We discuss in just a moment.
0: Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ.
2: 855-616-1620, which is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I, I guess I find this to be an interesting reaction. Again, l- legally, there's there's nothing wrong with it. People aren't obligated to speak. But I do find it it's interesting the... A 15-year-old who is responsible for killing four people at the, at the high school in Michigan the other day. Um, he, he's now he's lawyered up. Parents went out, got him a lawyer, and the parents aren't talking. He's not talking, not cooperating at all with police. And I'm not talking about calling up Fox News or MSNBC and giving interviews. I mean sitting down with the police and acknowledging what you you did. There, there's nothing. Again, you have a right to remain silent, but I'm I'm really I'm. I guess I, I'm troubled by the fact that I'm thinking if that was my 15-year-old that just committed these incredibly heinous acts, would, would my reaction to be, let, let's lawyer up and, and let's not cooperate with the police? And candidly, I don't think that that would necessarily be my reaction. Here's a text from one of our listeners. Jeff, saddest thing ever. I don't know how I would even start a conversation if my son killed three people. Just beyond comprehension, I'd feel such guilt that I failed my son. Um, Jeff, I'm a father of two. Unconditional love of my children is exactly that. Wanting to preserve the rights for my child is not um, uncompare uh, is not uncompassionate to his actions. Huh? Somebody else says, Jeff. I think the parents. Are probably concerned that maybe they're going to be liable for failure to secure the gun. Don't, don't know about that. Um, Jeff, does the kid have mental issues or something else? Till I know more about the kid, I wouldn't comment on the parent's actions. Well, I, I don't know. I just think it's an interesting reaction. Your child commits th- this horrible, horrible offense. There might be all sorts of defenses that you can put up, but, Would you want to say to the police, no, we're not going to cooperate with you? Let's start with Vincent on the northwest side. Vincent, good afternoon.
7: Good afternoon, Jeff. I I disagree with you on this. The fact is, I would tell an adult if he committed something as as heinous as this uh, young man has committed, that he needs to, to get himself a lawyer and keep his mouth shut. The fact is, there's nothing this kid can say that can help himself. The fact is, the fact is, the only thing he can do is harm himself by 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 uh, talking. So the fact is, you get him a lawyer and, and in fact, tell him to help him keep his mouth shut. The fact is, is that I would tell an adult
2: that. You say that he he can only harm himself. By harm himself, you mean um, further inculpate himself so that he's held accountable for what he did.
7: Well, Exactly. Okay. And the fact the, is the, 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 exactly the, the thing is is that uh, when she started talking and you don't know what he's going to say.
2: Well, okay, so, but, but but see, I guess that's my question, Vince. You're you're the dad. Your kid is guilty as you know what of killing four people and, and doing this. I mean, he he did it. You know, he did it. He knows he yes. did it. Everybody knows he did it. Yes. Is your is your concern to be, son, don't talk because you, you might give them more evidence that they're going to use against you, or is it going to be, son, you've done something really terrible. You're going to have to be held accountable for this, and, and maybe you can start making it right right now by, again, cooperating with law enforcement.
7: No, no. My, my point is I would, I, would, I, would, I would say the first part. I would say, yeah, you, you did something horribly wrong. And you're going to probably have to pay for this. But the fact is, is that when when it comes down to the law, the fact is, like you say, you have the right to right to right to your silence. He should keep his silence and and, and, and then move on. The fact is, I said no. You can't sit in there, and start blabbering blabbering all over the place because you never know what the kid is going to
2: say. Mm-hmm. Okay, let and me so, change the so, let me change the facts on you, a little Vincent. Okay, let's say that instead of him getting caught in the in in the act. Okay, he, he shoots these people, he, he goes out a back door, and, and the police right now don't know who they're looking for. He goes home, says, Dad, I, I they're, they're looking for a shooter, it's me. I shot these people, I used your gun that you bought the other day, um, I took your magazines, yeah. I'm the one that's guilty of this. Okay, at that point in time, do you, Vincent, say, we're, we, we're going to go turn yourself in, or, no, we don't want you saying anything, and let's see what's going to happen
7: exactly i'm going to i'm going to say listen you've done something horrible you're going to have to turn your, we're going to take you in and we're going to turn you in yes i will turn my son in okay i said listen you got to go in, you go, you're going to go face this but the fact is it doesn't mean that he gives up his rights rights to silence rights to and a right to an a, a, a attorney so, so, so the fact is those things I will get for him, but the fact is I, 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 I'm I still there to protect his rights as my son, but, but he but yeah, I'm going to take him in. Okay.
2: All right. But all right. So work with me on this one then. So then you take him in. <laughs> okay. So you, you take him in. What, what are you going to tell the cops? Are you going to tell the cops? Hey, my son just confessed to me that he, he shot all these people.
7: Exactly. That's exactly what I'm going to tell My I'm bringing my son in. My son confessed to me that he, he, he shot these people. I will tell them that. But the fact is, my son does not have to sit there and try to go through the whole scenario of why mm-hmm. he did it or, 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 or all this other stuff. Because like I said, you don't know what he's going to say. Okay. And you need to protect him.
2: Well, uh, But, right? but, but of course, Vincent, by you walking in and saying, hey, my son just told me he killed all these people, um, that, that's pretty damning evidence.
7: No, oh, it certainly is, but but the, but but the point is, my son doesn't have to give up his rights. I'm bringing him in because my, I believe my son just my son told me he did this, and I'm and so so I'm bringing him in, and uh, and, and and so we can go through the process that we need to go to. And my point is, is, is this individual child have they uh, 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 said he's going to be put into adult court yet?
2: Uh, they haven't yet. I'm sure they will. I, I mean, I I you, you murder. Four people and you shoot, I, I don't know. No, to answer your question directly, they, they haven't. If, if they don't wave him into, into adult court, I would be stunned. Hey, thanks for call, Vince. And it, interesting, interesting conversation, and people have to decide, I think, for themselves. Jim in Sheboygan. Jim, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Uh,
3: thanks for taking my call. Uh, some years ago, um, our son got into uh, legal um, mischief and uh um, it was interesting. First of all, we were so concerned for the victims that we wanted to work with the authorities and, first of all, making them whole. And then we uh, realized we did need an attorney because he was going to have to go to court. Right. Well, when we interviewed attorneys, we had several of them who said, "Oh, I can I can get him off," and we immediately left and said, "We don't want him to get off. We want him properly represented, and so he can get." proper punishment. That's what we're looking for, because it doesn't help the kid to just try to get him off. Now, in this particular case, that isn't going to happen, but I really don't understand uh, the motivation of parents who are not cooperating with authorities. It makes no sense to me at all.
2: Well, I mean, I I guess the argument would be you're trying to minimize the consequences for your your kid, and you're putting his... His rights and his interests um, of, of perhaps beating the case over the interests of the police in solving the case, which is a to, to me, that's a tough balancing act, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Hey, thanks for calling. I, I, it, to me, to me it's, it's, it, it's just kind of a I mean, it, it's sort of a, a tough balancing act. And again, I, I understand you have a constitutional right to remain silent. Uh, And I'm sure that's what the lawyer saying, don't cooperate. It can't help you at all. They're just using that to convict. They're going to use whatever you say to convict you. And that's true. That's that's what they're going to do. I just under a circumstance like this, if it was my child that had been involved in in committing some heinous act like this, I, I think. I, I maybe I'd be thinking to the point that the last caller was making more about the interests of I don't know the the victims than necessarily you know what you know what what is this going to mean for my kid because my kid has done something just unspeakably terrible. Uh, Brenda in Waukesha, Brenda, you're on WTMJ. What do you think?
8: You know, I I this is a fifteen. Can you hear me? Okay, yeah, absolutely. This is a fifteen-year-old boy who has serious problems, there is a place and a time to make sure that we understand why and what he was going through. So in the moment, I would not have him say anything. In the moment, I think we need to really sit back and and make sure we're doing everything properly. Because after what happened with Kyle Rigmauer here in Wisconsin and what the DA did in the The attack on him, I would not trust the police immediately. I would not trust the DAs. I want to make sure that we are doing everything properly, not disagreeing that there isn't consequences. That is very important and should not be dismissed. But we have a child here who's only 15 years old. Let's not forget that. Well, but he, he the, the, as child, as well? the child you murdered four say.
2: people in cold blood.
8: You cannot say what's in his head. Who cares? You know what it's like to be a 15-year-old. No. Wh- wh- no, who,
2: care? who, who cares? Wait I'm a second. Can... I'm sorry. Brenda, who cares? He brings a gun to Let us assume the facts are as they appear to be. He, he takes his father's gun. He brings it to school. He murders four people. He shoots, you know, eight more. And he would have shot even more Except they stopped him. Who cares what's in his head? I mean
8: isn't I, that And I mean that's horrible. It's horrible. You're absolutely right. It's horrible. It's not that it didn't happen. It's that we have to make sure we understand why it happened. We need that's what we need. It's not it's not about what it, the facts are facts. I,
2: I guess we yeah, need
8: so, to still understand why. Well, Brenda, I
2: think I don't care why. <laughs> I I mean I guess I, I, I with, with all due respect, I don't care why. I, I care about the four people that are dead. I feel care about the the other people who are injured, and the fact that you're going to have you know hundreds more who who have been just, just traumatized that they will take for the rest of their life. I mean, I I don't I don't care whether he was angry with his math teacher or whether he was you know mad about this or whether he was playing video games or whatever. I guess I, I really. I, I don't care my my sympathy in this particular case is going to be with the victims of the crimes and their families I guess i, I just don't care, but the larger point is I guess you know if he wants to tell his story and explain to the authorities you know what what motivated him to come to school and shoot it up that's you know that's all fine I guess i and it's, it's a difficult situation. It goes back to what I was asking our first caller, Vincent, about you find out your kid's committed a crime. Do you, in fact, turn him in? And do you say, hey, he, he's committed the crime, or do you simply say, okay, I'm going to get you a lawyer. We're, we're not going to disclose any of this, and we're just going to let this go and see how it turns out. Um, I don't have a 15-year-old kid, so I don't know, I guess, exactly how that I would handle it. But I'm not sure my reaction would be to tell the kid to lawyer up. Back with more in just a minute.
1: Jeff Wagner on WTMJ.
2: But before the, the Rittenhouse case completely disappears and we forget about some of the side stories, there, there, there is a follow-up, and, and credit to um, Fox Six because they, they, at least, maybe other news outlets have it. I, I haven't seen it, but but they have it, and it's just. If you want to understand what slime balls the people at MSNBC are, all all you have to to do is look at this. Remember, there was the story about how you had the MSNBC producer who was following the van containing the the jurors. And and the next day, the the judge ended up throwing them out of the courtroom, deservedly so. Well, okay, Fox 6 has the, the body cam video of the. MSNBC producer who was was stopped by the cops. So what happens is there's a, a there's a van that's taking the written house jurors either to their houses or to their cars. If they, I, I think they all parked at a particular like secure location and then they'd be shuttled in. So anyways, there's this MSNBC producer who's following the the car and remember that that's the story. So th- this is the body cam in, in an effort to. I think, get closer to the van with the jurors. The guy blows through a red light and they pull him over. So here's, so they've got this uh, on, on the body camera. So the, after the guy runs the red light, the the cop goes up to him and says, what are you doing? (laughs) You know, and, um, here's, they've got, here's what the guy, his 62 year old James Morrison, he's the producer. Here's what he tells Kenosha police. He says, um, 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 I was trying to see, I was being called by New York and saying, these are the people you need to follow. Um, but, but I don't know. He then told the officer he was just doing what he was told to do by New York. And, okay, I I just, I, I was just following. Why would I be following these people? So then he gets the producer on the phone to explain to the cop what the guy was, was doing. She says, well, um, um, we were just trying to find key players in the case. Um we, we were keeping our distance just to see where um like um um, people involved in the trial were positioned. By no means were we trying to get into contact with any of the jury members. Give me a blanking break. I, I mean, at some point in time. It's like how I, I understand you're a producer for MSNBC in New York and, you know, you think you're smarter than all these us people in flyover country. But uh, so you've got uh, you've got one of your minions who's tailing the jurors, blows through a red light and you're well, um, we were uh, we were trying to see where people involved in the trial were positioned. What the hell does that mean? By no means were we trying to get into contact with any of the jury members. No, here's what they were trying to do. They were trying to find out where the jurors were follow this van. If the van dropped them off at their houses, then they would have had the address of the houses. If the van dropped them off at, like, a common place where the cars were parked, they were going to film the cars, they were going to get the license plate numbers, so they were trying to identify the jurors. That's what this was all about, and the judge had every right to be incredibly upset, and it's, I mean, this is why people hate the news media, that they do stuff like this, and then they come up with these stupid explanations. I would have been much, I would have had much more respect for these people in msnbc if they just fessed up well yeah this is a big story you know we were trying to find out who the jurors were so we could contact them and see if they wanted to do interviews after the trial that's what we were going to do but instead it's humming a humming a humming we were um we were uh we, we wanted to see where people involved in the trial were positioned huh i mean just just fess up you got busted doing something sleazy own it this is jeff wagner on WTMJ. I did this yesterday and actually got a lot of feedback from it, and I know that not everybody listens at the same time every day. So I do I, I do want to try to put what happened today, the argument in front of the Supreme Court on abortion, I want to try to put it into some context. And regardless of how you feel, pro-life, pro-choice, you know, whatever, I want to give you some context as to w- what is being argued and what the decision is likely to be. All right, the, the seminal case in this country regarding abortion – is, of course, Roe versus Wade, which is a 1973 case by the United States Supreme Court. And uh, up until then, when it came to abortion, states had different rules. Individual states would have different rules as to whether abortion was allowed or prohibited or when you could do abortions under these circumstances. Okay, in Roe versus Wade, the Supreme Court found that there was a federal constitutional right um, to an abortion. It protected a pregnant woman's liberty to choose to have an abortion. And as a result, it, it struck down many different anti-abortion laws that existed at the time. Now, Roe versus Wade didn't say that the right to abortion was absolute. What it did is it, it created essentially a, a test of a fetal viability. It, it said that until The fetus is viable, meaning that it can live outside the womb. The woman has much greater rights. And so what they said was during the, they created this really artificial thing, saying, okay, during the first trimester, you you can't restrict the woman's right to have an abortion at any point in time. During the second trimester, which is kind of leading into that viability, um, Government can put restrictions, but they have to be modest restrictions based on medical factors. And then they said in the third trimester, after the fetus is viable, that, um, you, you could restrict the, the ability to have abortions. Doesn't say that you have to, and, and some states chose not to do it. But, but that's kind of the framework of Roe versus Wade, this sort of trimester thing that we, that they've, they've operated under. All right. This case. And apparently, based on the, the arguments in front of the Supreme Court, and, and look, they, they're they not going to decide today or tomorrow. I mean, what happens is you have the arguments, and then they get together, they decide the case, You write, somebody is assigned to write an opinion, and then you circulate it, and then you get dissenting opinions and things like that. And the, the other truth is, when, when people watch the, the questions for the judges and stuff, you, you don't know for sure. I mean, it's, a lot of times you can get an indication of which way justices are leading and things like that, but you never know for sure for sure, until, you know, an opinion absolutely comes out. But but here's, here's the deal. This Mississippi case takes on Roe versus Wade in a big way. First of all, in the 1970s, viability of, of a fetus was around 28 weeks. Medical science has evolved, so now it's about 23. That, that's kind of what they say. The law in Mississippi prohibits abortions, except for medical situations, life of the mother, things like that. It prohibits abortions after 15 weeks. Now, the way the numbers work across this country is 95% of abortions are performed within that 15-week period, right? There's not... That many abortions, which are done beyond 15 weeks, um, for non-medical purposes—you know, the, the non—again, life of the mother sort of thing. So what happens is Mississippi is arguing, "Hey, that this Roe versus Wade framework of three trimesters and stuff—you you should throw that out." I mean, we're we're allowing abortions within 15 weeks, but after that, we're saying no. Because even if the, the fetus might not be viable, we, we know that it's you know lungs are developing and there's a heartbeat and all these different sorts of things, even though it can't live outside the womb. So we've settled on on 15 weeks, and the the state of Mississippi is arguing. First of all, you should just throw Roe versus Wade out entirely. But then they're arguing. Secondly, even if you don't throw Roe versus Wade out, our limit of 15 weeks, instead of. Roe versus Wade's limit of, of only the third trimester, our, ours is reasonable. It doesn't impose an undue burden on women seeking abortions. And that if a woman wants to get an abortion, she can still get an abortion, she just has to do it again, you know, before before fifteen weeks expires. And so that's the argument that they are making. And at least they're they're saying a majority of the justices appear to be receptive to that argument that um, we we can we can we can rule on this mississippi case without fully tossing roe versus wade we can say that there's still a right to a constitutional right for a woman to have an abortion but you know, it, it has to be done within the, the first 15 weeks. And then, you know, after that, then you have the, these other limitations. You get an unlimited right for the first 15 weeks. So that's that's sort of what the argument is. And from what I can tell, a number of the Supreme Court justices are receptive to that. There's a couple justices who might be at a position of saying, we, we just don't think Roe versus Wade should be the law anymore. We don't think that there's a federal constitutional right to have an abortion. And as a result you know, we're, we're going to toss it. Now, what you also need to know is that if if Roe versus Wade is tossed or if this Mississippi law is upheld, that doesn't mean that uh, abortions, for example, in Wisconsin are going to suddenly become illegal or, or have to, you know, be done within 15 weeks. All it would mean is that every state would have the, the right to decide. And it might be that Mississippi... Mississippi has its 15 week limit it might be that Vermont says hey we don't you know we we want to continue to allow abortions to 30 weeks of pregnancy or whatever individual states would be able to make that decision but What the Supreme Court might say is that, hey, we find this 15, we still find there's a constitutional right to an abortion, but we find that this 15 week limit doesn't unduly burden a woman's right to have that abortion, especially given the fact that 95% of abortions occur before that period of time. Don't know what they're going to decide, but this, this will not, under any circumstances, I think, regardless of what they rule, it's not going to make abortion illegal in this country. Now, uh, if if you you know appreciate Roe versus Wade and you think that needs to be the law of the land, the worst case scenario this would just be hey we send it back to the states and states get to make a decision. I don't think they're going to completely and totally toss Roe versus Wade. I don't think they need to go that far. I think this case. I would not be surprised if they uphold that fifteen week time limit. And then abortions after that for the health of the mother or things like that. I wouldn't be surprised if they fi- hold that as a reasonable restriction. On, on abortion. Then, of course, you know, the next case is going to come around, and it's going to be some state that says you can only have abortions after six weeks, or or whatever that's going to be, and, and then they're going to have to revisit the question. But um, this is going to be a very, very closely watched case. It does appear that the current members of the Supreme Court are willing to take a hard look at Roe, and while I don't predict that they're going to toss it completely, I do I do think that they're likely to uphold this Mississippi law, which will then open up the door for other states to start imposing their own sort of regulations, or or maybe not. So that's what's going on. It's a, that's the easiest way I can explain it. We won't know for sure until there's actually a decision that comes down, and trying to speculate exactly what they're going to do based on questions that the judges have, justices have, or, or leanings that they appear to be showing, it's always tough. But that's if I had to give you a guess, that's what I think is going to happen.
8: This is Jeff Wagner on WTMJ.
2: So very glad to have you with us. Hey, coming up in the next hour, I want to talk about high-capacity magazines and guns. It's going to be an interesting conversation. Uh, Another development yesterday, and I I hate to say, I don't hate to say I told you, so I did tell you so. I've been predicting this outcome for a couple of years now. The state Supreme Court weighed in on the issue of gerrymandering. And if you listen to some particularly liberal activists, they they say, oh, this this is terrible. The only reason those evil Republicans control the legislature in Wisconsin Wisconsin is because it's gerrymandered we need to change things all right here's the well the Supreme Court said sorry you're you're wrong and the Supreme Court yesterday was absolutely correct in that ruling here's the deal every ten years you have a census and congressional districts assembly districts state senate districts all need to be redrawn based on on population changes you know that the the city of Milwaukee might have X number of people living in it in 2010. By 2020, maybe more people have moved in, maybe people have moved out. Um, and because assembly districts and Senate districts and congressional districts all need to have approximately the same number of people in them, what you need to do is you need to redraw the districts every, you know, every ten years. Now, the one thing that is settled law is that in redrawing districts, you cannot discriminate against people on the basis of race. For example, you can't take a... uh, let's, Let's say you have neighborhoods in the city of Milwaukee that are heavily Latino, for the sake of argument. And you can't say, we're going to draw assembly districts to minimize the Latino vote. So instead of having a couple seats where the the majority of people in them are Latino, we're gonna draw all these like weird districts so that the population in any one of these districts is only like 30% Latino, so we're going to try to prevent Latinos from winning some of these seats. So you can't do it on the basis of, of race. The Democrats in Wisconsin have been arguing that in addition to race, you shouldn't be able to draw districts based on partisanship. By by that, I mean in Wisconsin, here's the reality. The vast majority of the state geographically is is Republican. Republicans tend to live all throughout the state. Now, the state is about a 50-50 state, but Democrats tend to cluster in urban areas, particularly Milwaukee, city of, Milwaukee County to an extent, but particularly the city, and of course in Dane County. So what the Democrats want to do is they wanted to say, all right, we want to try to even out the partisanship. So even though we've got 80% 80% of the population of Dane County that's that are a democrat what we want to do is we want to draw districts that take these people that live in Dane County and put them in with people who live in Jeff- Jefferson County or Marquette County or whatever we want to draw these weird shaped districts to try to Even it out to say, okay, instead of having a district that's 80 percent Democrat, now we're going to have a district that's 60 percent Democrat. They wanted to draw them on partisan lines. Well, the problem is, you know, people move all the time. How do you do that? Secondly, there's no constitutional right to that. And thirdly, wh- where do you take this? I mean, what if you've got the, the Libertarian Party candidates? Do you need to say, hey, Libertarian Party candidates live, uh, a lot of them live in Wapaca, so what we need to do is we need to draw weird lines to try to get them all over. And, and see, that's, that's the problem. Big problem Democrats have is that people live, tend to wanna live um, where people ideologically agree. With them. That's not the only factor, but that's one of the things it tends to be. So as long as Democrats are going to be heavily concentrated in one or two areas of the state, Those districts are always going to be safe democratic districts, but you're not going to be able to redraw districts to have these like weird shaped elongated districts to try to get more Democrats into Waukesha County or more Democrats into, I don't know, some somewhere else. We, you know, we got too many, we have too many Republicans in the Fox River Valley. So let's figure out if we can move some of the people that live in the city of Milwaukee and draw some really weird district to get out there and cover the Fox River Valley. Well, anyhow, the state Supreme Court said, no, you. You don't draw districts based on partisanship. There's no way to do this. What you do is you look at geography, you know, you want districts that are the people who, you know, live in neighborhoods are are together. You know, you look at proximity. You can't discriminate, of course, based on race. So we can't break up districts that um, are heavily minority, whether it's black or Latino or whatever. Can't do that. But otherwise, you know, we, we don't have to worry about the fact that one district is 80 percent Republican or one district is 80 percent Democrat. That's just a function of of again the geography well the democrats don't like it i I get it because it pretty much guarantees that as long as democrats choose to live in heavily concentrated a couple areas they will always hold those seats but it's less likely that they're going to be able to pick up new seats at least in any significant number that's what the supreme court ruled yesterday though you don't draw districts based on partisanship the supreme court is absolutely totally 100 percent correct Where it goes from here, who knows? Coming up in just a couple minutes, I want to talk about firearms, and I want to talk about those magazines, you know, the ones that have 15, 20, 30 rounds in them. Stick around.
1: Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the
2: Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. So, Melissa, did you have fun at the holiday show last night oh
0: my gosh it was so much fun i look forward every year to the show and especially meeting our our fans the people that come and and see us it's such a delight to be able to see them face to face
2: yeah everybody i love that yeah the the thing and actually i you know we're going to start replays i think in in the middle of december Mm -hmm. and you 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 never know how some of the stuff that happens live is going to translate into the show (laughs) but i I, i i will say that um I think of all the different ones that I've been involved with, and I was involved since since the beginning, since we started this, whether it's been six or seven, this was maybe the best or one of the top two. It really was. Right. And and I think it was well-received and we had a lot of fun. You know what I really enjoy about it, though, and this is kind of inside baseball, is it's an opportunity for all of us who work here at WTMJ to get together.
0: Because Uh, we all work different shifts and we're never here at the same time. You're right about that.
2: Well, right. It's kind of like... You know when okay in other lives I, I worked at kind of like a nine to five sort of mm-hmm. job and and so everybody would come in at the same time and everybody <laughs> would leave at the same time and you'd have opportunities you know you get together and you go out for a drink or something like that after work just because uh, at least those of us who are on air it, it's 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 different now I I because I'm midday's I come in whatever time I come in you know depending on the day but sometimes I'll, I'll see like Jane and Jean. If they're here, but a lot of times they're gone. They, they, get, they get here at like three in the morning. And so yeah. their day is over by the time I, I get in. And from your perspective, I mean, a lot of times, depending on what time you're going to get in, in the morning, that the morning folks are already gone. And <laughs> true, so yeah. they don't see the afternoon folks. And and we don't just because of the nature of the schedules. You don't you don't get together and, and go out for a beer or something because. Someone's well, got
0: to get up early in the morning. Right, the, the or, morning show
2: folks are gone, or, or I'm I'm out the door at three fifteen or three o five or yeah. whatever that would be, and you know you, you don't come back for these things, so we just don't have that socialization.
0: Yeah, it's funny you say that because I was coming in this morning and Gene Miller was leaving, and I just thought, oh, what a long morning and night he had because he was at the radio show last night. Right. Then he had to like quickly come back in for the morning show, so he was probably here you know two thirty or three o'clock or whatever it was. So right. a quick turnaround and changing of the guard, just sort of hey, hi, hi bye. <laughs> well, well, that's
2: it. And of course, in a COVID has made it even weirder because th- at least, you know, pre-COVID, there were a-, a lot of the people who work behind the scenes here who, I mean, aren't the radio people, but are who are essential to are, are, are salespeople or the people that schedule the commercials and stuff like that. And and all the marketing people, all those folks. Uh, you know, they're they're not even here necessarily, some are, but a lot are still working remotely or they're on these different schedules mm-hmm. and stuff. And you just, th- this is the one opportunity this, and when we do the, we always do a walkthrough um, a week before, it's the one opportunity that we have to like get everybody together yeah. and actually see folks and it's stuff. It's so
0: nice, yeah, and, it, and then again, like you said, it's a rarity. We rarely ever do that once a year though. We do it, and it uh, usually turns out pretty well. Like you said, this one, I think, was probably my favorite since being here, yeah. since 2018. We've done it at Turner Hall. We've done it at other places, but uh, this one's yeah. pretty special. Well, I think
2: the, plus it's, I, I know, I mean, my wife came, and so she had a, she just had a, but I, w- I, w- I was going out. I was working the crowd in the beginning, you know, while well, everybody suspects, I'm, I'm walking up and down the, yeah. this, around, and <laughs> just saying hi to people, and, and that was the big question. It wasn't people wanting to see me. They're all talking about, can we see your wife? Is Fran Did here? Fran? Is here? Did said, you bring yeah, Sasha? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's exactly yeah. right so I, I did go get fran i said "Yeah, you want you come out and meet some people and I said who i said well, there's about 300 people i want you to meet and she's like what yeah, said, no. <laughs> yeah so come on out but it was it was always a good time oh, it was fun oh such a great time yeah so we want to encourage everybody to hear it and and i'm not supposed to give away too much stuff cuz there's all sorts of surprises and things like that but melissa you know you you demonstrated last night your your versatility <laughs> not only as a spoken word actress, hmm. but also um, your musical abilities. Because there's a couple of musical numbers that you are um, involved in. A couple
0: of numbers, yeah. I, I hope they sounded okay when you're doing it. You're not sure. It was Jane and me and Debbie from Traffic, and we were the WTMJ singers, and we um, you know, tried to showcase that a little bit.
2: That That's not the one that troubles me. It's the, <laughs> the solo that you did with Steve Scafidi that I, I'm not going to go into too much, other than I've been – I just I found it – both intriguing and disturbing. I keep wondering if I'm supposed to call human resources about that, but we'll, you know, people can listen people to that. People can hear. listen to that. People can listen That's and hear tease. that. That's a good That's Well, it's, it's, it's there. So anyhow, I think this, I think the 18th is when they first uh, rerun this, but it'll be rerunning again throughout the course of, of December and stuff. And for everybody who came out last night to um, really honor Gene Miller, who after mm. 43 years um, is, is leaving into retirement. You know, we, uh we we all say Godspeed to Gene and he's just um truly, truly gonna be missed.
0: Yeah, we're gonna have him here though until February, so uh there'll be a lot of tears though. A lot of tears last night, but in February when he does leave, that will be really sad. Yeah, it
2: yeah. will be absolutely and so and Gene and I have worked together for decades yeah. and uh, it was wonderful. All right. Let us completely and totally switch gears. Wanna go where Angel's fear to tread. All right. The Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, the the way it works in in the federal government is you have different, I think there's like 94 judicial districts across the country. For example, in Wisconsin, there's the eastern, in the federal system, there's the eastern district of Wisconsin, there's the western district of Wisconsin. You go out to Madison, you draw a line north and south through the state, um, and then the eastern portion, to the east of that line is the eastern district, which has about two-thirds of the population. To the west is the, the western district. Okay, so that's it. And then you have the, what they call the, the various courts of appeals. In Wisconsin, we are governed by the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals, which hears all the cases from the federal courts in Indiana, in Indiana and, um, Wisconsin and, uh, Illinois. That, those are, that's the Seventh Circuit. In the Ninth Circuit, the Ninth Circuit is the West Coast. So California, Oregon, um, Washington State, Hawaii, maybe a couple other states as well. The Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals is the largest court of appeals in the country. But it doesn't mean that they're particularly that they have any cachet uh, above it, but it's the it's the largest. And because a lot of the justices come judges come from California, uh, the Ninth Circuit tends to be the most liberal court in the in the country. And you have some court of appeals that tend to be more conservative. Well, anyhow, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals came down with a ruling yesterday. They were sitting what they call en banc, which means all normally on appellate cases, you you have a three judge panel. In this case, all the full time judges in the Ninth Circuit heard this and they issued a split decision upholding a California law back in 2016. California passed a law which prohibited the private ownership of large firearm magazines. It said that you could not own you know, a, a magazine. So you got two kinds of guns. You've got revolvers where, you know, the, the old six-shooters where you you know you put the bullets in the different chambers, and then you have it. Then you have, like, for example, semi-automatic firearms, handguns and, and rifles, and they all have magazines. You know, we would call them clips, but, you know, magazines. And they have various bullets in them. And then, so what you do is you take, to fire the gun, you take the magazine, you insert it into, in this case, the handgun, you rack the chamber, and a, a bullet goes in there. All right, the ninth... California passed a law which said private citizens cannot own what they call high-capacity magazines, and that would be a magazine that holds more than 10 rounds. So that's the maximum. You could own as many, many magazines as you want, but you couldn't own a magazine that has 15 rounds or 30 rounds. You know, you've seen them, the extended things. And the California, California decided, you know, the, the Second Amendment, you know, the right to bear arms doesn't extend to high capacity magazines. And as part of the law, people that owned these high capacity magazines, you know, the ones that had capacity for 15 or 30 bullets or whatever, they would have to turn them in. Well, this was challenged. Federal judge tossed this. And then the Federal Court of Appeals, in a two to one decision, said, no, no, this law is unconstitutional. Well, earlier this week, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals overruled that and said this law is valid and that people, that the state has the right to limit High-capacity magazines, defined as anything with more than ten bullets. All right, our number eight five five six one six one six twenty. That is the AccuNet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Now, obviously, this this is going to be fast-tracked to the Supreme Court, and so this U.S. Supreme Court is ultimately going to be the one that decides it. Other courts across the country have also held that a state has the right to ban. Again, high-capacity magazines. We're not talking about guns. We're talking about the magazines that contain ammunition. So let's tee this up. 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Is it unreasonable? Should a state have a right to say, you know, you you don't need a magazine that has more than 10 rounds in it? You can have multiple magazines. Have multiple magazines, but the limit is is 10 shots. I'm trying to think. I, I have a... I Have a nine millimeter handgun I, I i mean I've said that before, and uh the magazines that I have that go with it i are eight shots eight there it's an eight round magazine, so you I mean that that's the limit you'd have to have multiple magazines, but you know if if you exhausted those magazines that one you'd have to discharge it and put another one in. you can own as many as you want, but it can't have more than under california's law ten bullets in it eight five five six one six one six twenty does the state have a right to outlaw that?
1: Back to Take Your Calls. Here's WTMJ's Jeff
2: Wagner. 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Okay, you, you have the Second Amendment, and, and I, I am big advocate of the Second Amendment, the right to bear arms. The question, though, is can you have... Reasonable limitations on the right to bear arms. Now we know felons can't possess guns. We know that you can't own a machine gun, for example, without getting all sorts of certifications, you know, for that and and approvals. So now the question is, if you've got a high capacity magazine, all right? Does the state have the right to say, hey, we can restrict the size of that? You can't have a magazine that carries more than 10 shots. That's what California has done. 855-616-1620. Let's start with Mike in Beloit. Hi, Mike. You're on WTMJ.
9: Hi. uh, Thanks for taking my call. I think uh, citizens definitely have a Second Amendment constitutional right to have high-capacity magazines. I mean, typically people will say, hey, these are weapons of war. You don't need, uh, you know, equipment or tools to go to war but that's exactly what the second amendment is for we may have an invasion from a foreign government or we may have issues with the domestic government Uh, the fed just yesterday announced that inflation is no longer transitory what happens if the government keeps printing money and can't afford to pay our soldiers the only people are going to be able to defend this country are the private citizens and private militia groups if someone like, say, China decides they want to invade.
2: Well, I guess, Mike, the question would be, um, c- can you strike a balance? Like, nobody is saying that you can't own, own guns, but, you know, do, you, do can can there be limits? I mean, you can have as many 10-round magazines as as you want. Is it an unreasonable limit to say you're, you're limited to a 10-round magazine, you just can't have a 30-round magazine because we know these shooters in these mass murder situations go in with the 30-round magazines?
9: Well, look at Kyle Rittenhouse down in uh, Kenosha. He needed, a, you know, several bullets because there was an entire mob that was attacking him. You know, if he only had, say, six rounds in a revolver and he maybe missed a few shots and he still had people coming at him, he he might be dead today.
2: Okay, thanks for the call. 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Well, again, just so people understand, California isn't saying – you you can't have you you can't have a a semi-automatic handgun, and they're not saying that you can't have a, a magazine that has up to ten rounds. And of course, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to think you you can you can reload magazines in a, a matter of seconds. I mean, I, I think actually the more compelling argument would be. That if you've got a, a shooter of mass uh, – somebody who's intent on causing you know mass destruction, whether they've got a 30-round magazine or three 10-round magazines, the time it takes to reload is so negligible that it doesn't make any difference. But I guess the real question is, do you think the Constitution and the right to bear arms – extends to the fact that a state couldn't limit the capacity of the magazines that you have. 855-616-1620, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Ben in South Milwaukee. Hi, Ben. You're on WTMJ. Hey,
10: Jeff. What do you think? Um, yeah, I, I think that their their decision to uphold that law is totally ridiculous. Um, these magazines are standard capacity designed by the manufacturer to be used in that functioning firearm. They are totally covered by the second amendment and rightfully so these firearms are designed to uh have that capacity and to function fully with that Mm -hmm. capacity and even the ergonomics the the weight of the bullets within that magazine and the ergonomics of the firearm are can be affected if uh, you had put in the wrong size magazine
2: do you think do you think people need large capacity magazines
10: absolutely um you know, unfortunately, with uh we live in the day when home invasions is a possibility. Um, you got two or three people coming in, and you need that capacity to really protect yourself. Um, if you have multiple intruders coming in armed, and you got to protect yourself and your family, um, capacity is a great hmm. thing to have on your side.
2: Okay, thanks for calling. I mean, I guess it's interesting. I've never. I mean, I, I again, I, I own a handgun, and uh, as I was saying earlier, I, I I think it's it's eight eight shells, as I recall, and you could have, I guess, one in the chamber as well, so you'd have a nine uh, bullet capacity. And I have multiple, I have multiple uh, magazines. It's it's never occurred to me that if I ever needed to use it, that I, I'd need the thirty capacity magazine as opposed to three with the eight or nine or ten. All right, when we come back, we're going to find out what John McCurry has on his mind. Stick around.